Well, join me in Mark chapter 1, and as you're turning there, let me begin by telling you about one of the books in our library down the hall. So one of those books in the library is a biography of a young man whose life was cut short at 25 years old. At 25 years old, he died in Egypt while studying Arabic on his way to the northern part of China. His name was William Borden. And although William Borden was extremely wealthy and actually set to inherit um, the, the empire uh, and the Borden Dairy Empire, he uh, was willing to bag it all um, for the sake of Christ and the calling that he had put on his life. Um, Borden had encountered the gospel of Jesus, and it had not only radically changed Borden's life, It left him totally convinced that his life was not his own. It belonged to the master, it belonged to Jesus, and he would leverage every ounce of it for the sake of the kingdom to the glory of God. So no earthly fortune, in his opinion, and that fortune was massive, but no earthly fortune could compare the treasure that he had found in Christ and in service to him. And he would uh, not be kept from obeying God's call on his life. At three different, and I'll use the word historic, moments in his life. His calling, uh, his graduation from uh, Princeton Seminary, or, or actually, uh, I think it was Princeton Seminary. Um, and then, obviously, at his deathbed. At those three different historic moments in his life, he wrote two different words in the back cover of his Bible. And the six words that he wrote in total in the back of his Bible became words that he is well known for. And if you grab that book, you can read the rest of the story. But those words are this, no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. As I think through his story in life and as I think through all of the biographies of missionaries that I read, I'm forced to ask this question. I mean, what is it about this man Jesus who would cause someone like a William Borden to leave the milk jug, right? And the, the profits that come as a result of inheriting that massive business. What is it that moves in the heart of men to leave their fishing boats or, or the tax booth or, or their medical profession to answer his call to come and follow me? And really, that's what Mark begins to lay out in the rest of this chapter as we've read it word for word earlier. But Mark begins to show us the answer to this question or make his case to answering this question. And he does so by revealing the inauguration of Christ's kingdom. So the beginning of Christ's kingdom. He does so by showing us an episode of the calling of some of the early disciples and how his teaching amazed and astonished people. Why? Because when they heard it, they realized that we've never heard teaching like this. And as a result of all of those things, we'll watch throughout the whole book of Mark, and it's alluded to in chapter 1, how Jesus' fame spreads throughout the kingdom. So that's where we're headed this morning, um, with apologies for doing it so quickly and skipping over or on top of some of the big stones as we go. But let's begin with verses 14 and 15. Point number one, 
his kingdom inaugurated. His kingdom inaugurated. Let me read the first couple of verses here um, from our chapter in verse 14. It says this, Now after John was arrested, so here's a benchmark of time. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, as we, as we saw in the first part of this chapter, Mark laid out the groundwork of John the Baptist, right? John's ministry was to prepare the way of Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But John the Baptist had been very outspoken against the sin in Herod's life, and as a result of his you know, uh, confronting Herod with that, Herod throws him into prison. And that stint in prison would eventually lead uh, to John the Baptist martyrdom, uh, dying by being beheaded. So Mark intentionally throws these couple of lines in here. Now, after John was arrested, and he does so really to alert us. He's alerting his readers, not only at the start of Jesus' ministry, but, but also to convey the sense of urgency. You heard it immediately, 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 all the way through what we read this morning. But he's conveying that sense of urgency that was behind everything Jesus did. Not just in this first chapter we see in Mark, but every action that he did as he's set his face toward Jerusalem on his way to the cross. He, proclaim, he proclaimed the good news. And he came to be the good news. So he came to proclaim the good news, and he came to be the good news. That's why John records in the 14th chapter of John, Jesus saying this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But it's important for us to note this correlation between John's imprisonment and the, the inauguration of Jesus' ministry and, and the kingdom, ultimately. All right, Because what I want you to see as we just kind of refer to this is this. The correlation between John's imprisonment and the start of Jesus' ministry and his message and life is, is letting us know that the gospel is proclaimed and known in adversity and suffering not as a source for smooth sailing. So you've got this buttress right in between this arrest and everything that Jesus is proclaiming that he came to usher in, which would only come as a result of his suffering and his call to his disciples will be one of radical following and to follow the cause of Christ is to come and follow a call to die. But before we look at the message that Jesus came proclaiming. I want to point out just two things as it relates to the timing of the inauguration of the kingdom. Okay, so let's think about the timing. And I'll do so highlighting really a couple of English words, historic and historical. Okay, so think about this. The, the Greek uses two different words for the word time. We don't differentiate that in ours. We allow context to do that or an elaboration of our explanation, right? But 
but we use the word time and let context define it. The Greek would have used two different words. One of those words was chronos. It's not important for you to remember that. I just wanted you to get the big picture of this. The other is kairos. Chronos refers really to the, I didn't wear my watch today, but if I were to look down at it, chronos refers to the, really the summation of seconds and minutes to designate a specific time. What time does the church service start at Redeemer Fellowship? Well, when it's on time, Redeemer starts at 1030, right? It always starts on time unless I'm opening up the service and I get kind of, you know, busy chatting and forgetting that, oh yes, it's 1030, I need to uh, get to it. But Kairos, on the other hand, it doesn't point to the hands on your watch, but it refers to a season of time that's, that really is so significant that it impacts all moments of time after it. Think about the difference, chronos, kairos. So we don't differentiate that in our English language. We just use the word time and, and allow our context to explain it. R.C. Sproul kind of is the one who put me on to thinking about this in light of similar words in our English language that help us differentiate these ideas between chronos, accumulation of seconds and minutes on the watch, and kairos, um, uh, monumental season of time, right? And he does it by, by using the word historical and historic. Think about the lens of history here. Think about Moses. Moses is tending the flocks of his father-in-law in Midian. Every day that he did that was in, in true form historical. In other words, you can look back and it happened at certain times. It happened on the calendar. They were just days that took place. They were historical days because they landed on the calendar. But there was a time in Moses' life when he's tending the flocks. He's shepherding the flocks. And all of a sudden, he's confronted with a bush that's on fire, but the fire's not consuming it. And from that bush, the angel of the Lord speaks to him. That was not only historical, but friends, that was historic. You see the difference. you got historical things versus historic. Everything that happens in life is historical. But not everything in life that happens is historic. When God delivered Noah and his family uh, from the coming flood, that was historic. When God delivered the children of Israel from Egypt, that was historic. When God delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace, and even later brought the Israelites out of exile, those things were historic. But... As we look through the lens of all of those things that I just mentioned, all of the saving acts of God throughout redemptive history seem to reach their climax in the historic, or I'll use the Greek word here for you, the chirotic salvation that was being announced when Jesus says, the time. He's not saying the time. He's saying, this is historic. And this time is fulfilled, right? So that's the language. He's saying the kairos, the time is fulfilled. And I don't want you to miss that. Mark records Jesus' words of ministry as being this. The word fulfilled means it's filled to the brim. It's, it's not only filled. My brother Todd used to 
You ask him to fill up your glass at the table, and if the parents weren't in the room, he would fill, 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 fill until that. It just kind of had a bubble right over the top of it. So whoever the poor chap was to move that glass is going to spill everywhere, right? It was filled to overflowing. That's what the word fullness means. In other words, when Jesus says the kairos, the time is fulfilled, he's saying that all of redemptive history has been pointing to and has reached its overflowing level and is fulfilled. In other words, the time has come. And he's standing before all these folks and he's saying the kingdom is at hand. How can he say that the kingdom is at hand? He can say that the kingdom was at hand because the coming of Jesus, he who was speaking in the flesh in their presence, had set God's plan to redeem and to save people into motion. So Mark doesn't want us to miss this. Verse 1 speaks of the gospel. Now verse 15, where Jesus is starting this ministry, John's in prison, Jesus stands up and says, the kairos the most historic time of historic times is fulfilled. I will tell you that even culture recognizes Jesus' advent as so chirotic that the calendars changed at his birth. So that we even look at the calendars and we say that things pre-Jesus' birth are denoted by B.C. Things post his birth are denoted by A.D. I know you don't need Latin lessons here, nor do I um, have enough confidence in pronouncing it correctly to give it to you. But that is known now ever, ever after from his birth as the year of the Lord. His presence, his coming, his advent was chirotic. Right? Catch that. We've looked at timing, and I hope that wasn't a wasted sidebar for you. It does leap off the page. It's very significant to me, and I hope to bring that back to our attention in just a moment. We've looked at timing. Now let's look for a moment at the message that he came to uh, present or to proclaim. He does it in three stages. He talks about the kingdom. He speaks of repentance, and he speaks of belief. First off, let's just glance at a moment at the word kingdom, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God refers to the sovereign rule and reign over all of this creation. And that's the sovereign rule and kingdom of God. Entrance into God's kingdom cannot be earned. It cannot be merited. It cannot be bought but it does require a response. And he speaks of this in his message. Jesus boiled down the required response to this double-sided command that is always bound together in the Scriptures. That double-sided command being repent and believe. So we're just touching upon this, right? The first repentance. What does the word repent mean? To repent means to turn away from a pattern of life or to turn away from any object of trust and affection other than or that stands in opposition to or in conflict or competition to God himself. Repentance. And then he says, repent and believe. 
The object of that's going to be in his initial sermon, the gospel, right? Belief. To believe is more than just, and I think I might have even heard Mark talking about this through the uh, door when he was teaching Sunday school, but to believe is more than just knowing something or believing the validity of something. That's why James writes in, in his letter toward the end of the New Testament, um, hey, you believe that God is one? Well, you do well, right? But then he goes on to say, even the demons believe and they shudder. So it's not limited just to belief, right? To believe as Jesus is proclaiming here and as it relates to the gospel is, is to commit oneself wholeheartedly to the gospel. That is to say, to, to commit oneself wholeheartedly in belief and action and conviction to Christ. Repentance and belief are bound together in the message of the gospel. If you have one without the other, you may become a strong moralist or you may be a well-informed person, but you cannot be a member of the kingdom. So Jesus stands before the people everywhere he goes in the dawning of the kingdom of God in the early days of his ministry, and he says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And true to form, Mark just goes from there to whoosh, to the next thing, right? And in light of that, we're going to do the same and try to tie all these things together. Uh, if you'll look at verses 16 to 20, um, this is where his disciples are called. His disciples are called. Notice what it says in verses 16 to 18. Mark writes, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Don't let the name Simon trip you up, young people. You've, you know this guy. This is Peter, right? And his name has not yet been changed, but this is who we're referring to, or Mark is referring to. Notice what Jesus says to these guys. Jesus said to them, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed them. Again, you've, I, I can't read through all these, and I've read this chapter a lot this week, but I can't read through it without asking myself this question that we ask in light of, of William Borden. What was it about this man from Nazareth that can persuade these four men with with what amounts to pretty lucrative businesses, right? These Don't think fishermen thus poor. Think, I mean, these, these are guys with servants and staff and multiple boats and businesses that have been handed down by their fathers. What is it about this man, Jesus, from Nazareth that will cause these men um, to um, walk away, leave the nets and follow Jesus? And, and frankly, Mark doesn't give us any color commentary from his section. He just, he kind of lays out the facts and then we move on or we're left to turn to one of the other gospels for a little bit more color commentary. And that's what I've done this morning. I want to tell you the story of this calling through the lens of Luke's gospel, which takes place in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And in that occasion... 
Luke recorded that one day Jesus is traveling up in Galilee. So that's the northwest territory, or that's the territory that's northwest of the Sea of Galilee. And it's, it's around, he's around the northwest part of that lake as he's traveling. And he was technically in an area called Gennesaret on his way to a town called Capernaum. And you're probably familiar with the town Capernaum. Much of his miraculous works and ministry took place in that area. But he's en route there. Um, and it, it's, it's actually pretty interesting because Luke refers to that lake as the lake of Gennesaret. Whereas Mark refers to that same body of water as the Sea of Galilee. That's what we just read. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee is what Mark says. But you turn to the next book in Luke and you see that he doesn't refer to that. Is this this a different occasion? Is this a different body of water? And frankly, no. And I I was telling uh, my family on the way in this morning, there's some similarities here to how you and I, who born and raised around the Chattanooga area, if we are spending the day up at the lake. We may just refer to it as the lake, or we may, because we have out-of-town guests, refer to it as, well, we're going to the Chickamauga Lake. Or if, if we're going to put in up there just south of Possum Creek, we may say, hey, meet me up at Soddy Lake. We've, we've said three different things, but we've referred to the same big body of water, right? Depending on where you are standing on the shores of that water, you might refer to it as something different. So, so don't let the different names uh, in the different sections of... Uh, accounts of the gospel trip you up. Okay, it's kind of like tomato, tomato, potato, patata. They're both talking about the same lake. So jump back on the shores of this lake here. People are crowding around Jesus all over to to hear what he's going to say next. And, And just beyond the crowd on that occasion, Jesus looks ahead and he sees a couple of boats. They're not right next to each other. They're staggered a little bit farther away from each other. The fishermen themselves are still in the boats. They've fished all night long. They've caught nothing. And the reason they're still in the boats is they're, they're taking those nets that they would, throughout the night, just chuck out into the water. And those nets would sink down because weights would come in. And if they felt some tugs on that, they would pull that big net in. And hopefully, Lord willing, it's got some fish in it. They'd pull it into the boat, get the fish out, and, and chuck it back out. And they'd do this all night long, right? But these two men are still in the boat. And they're not fishing anymore, but they're taking the time to repair uh, their nets. And Jesus interrupts this process. Guys have been up all night. They're worn out. And now they're fixing their boats so they can live to fish another day. And he steps into one of those boats. And, and as he steps into that boat, he says, hey, would you mind paddling out a little bit from the shore so I can teach? And I don't know what you would say to that after working all night and catching nothing. And now you're mending your nets and moving on to the next thing. The guy in the boat just paddles out. And Jesus sits down in the boat and he begins to talk to the crowd um, uh, as they continue to gather and squish in. That boat belonged to Simon, Simon Peter. And Simon rowed out to the shore. Jesus sits down and teaches. But the crowd was not his only audience. And in fact, you get every impression that his intended target was Peter. With empty nets, Peter was hooked. There's something radically different about Jesus' teaching. And Peter probably can't escape it. As Ken Geyer wrote in his book, Intimate Moments with the Savior, 
Hear what he says. He doesn't hold it over their heads like a club, his teaching that is. He simply holds it up to the light and thus held a rainbow of color wash his hope over the gray crowd. Colors of a new kingdom in the first blush of dawn. Jesus brought his teaching to a conclusion and and probably encouraged the crowds to scatter. And as he is concluding his talk, he he looks back in the boat and, and tells Simon, Hey, Simon, stretch on out a little bit farther and throw your nets out into the deep water. And and I frankly think Simon's response to what he has just been told to do by Jesus was more for us than it was Simon's attempt to let Jesus know that, hey, you're really a good preacher. I mean, really good. You talk, people listen. They want to hear you. In fact, we've never heard teaching like this before. But how about you stick to that and I'll stick to the boat stuff. I don't think that's Simon's motivation, although I've kind of toyed around with that in my head through the years. I actually think that this is for us. Simon tells Jesus, Master, we toiled all night and we've taken nothing. But at your word, I'll let down these nets. When he let down those nets, the nets became so filled with fish that they began to break. He called the other boat for help and they eventually hauled in this catch filling both of the boats. And now, with full nets, Simon was convinced. Can you imagine this scene? Simon, astonished now, not only with Jesus' teaching that's held him captive, I mean, it caused him to wheel on out or row out on into the boat, and he's probably continuing to mend his nets, but he's also both ears wide open listening to Jesus. But he's not only astonished with Jesus' teaching, but he's also astonished with what Jesus did. And as a result, he falls down to Jesus' knees. It's always been a strange thing for me to think about. Luke just says that Simon fell down to his knees before Jesus. And you and I might use the expression when we're worshiping or when we're referencing someone worshiping before the Lord, that they fell down before his feet and worshiped. But how cool is it for Luke to include in this narrative, this story, that the boats were probably so filled with fish he can't get to his knees, I mean his feet. And the closest thing that he's getting to are the knees of Jesus. Peter has not only been hooked by his teaching, but he's been convinced that his teaching comes along with his ability to back it up, the authority with which he's speaking from. And he does so now with a boat that's filled with fish. And from full nets, Simon was called. Jesus told him, and by this time his other three partners, two of which were brothers, sons of Zebedee, something I want to stress to you this morning. He says this, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And make them fishers of men, Jesus did. Luke records that they brought their boat to land, left everything they had, and they followed Jesus. And for the next three years, they got dusty from such close proximity to Jesus. He taught, they listened. 
He cast out demons, they marveled. He healed, they watched. He multiplied food, they passed it out. Up to that, catch the word, up to that chirotic moment on the shore of that lake, when Jesus stepped into Simon's boat, their vision was a fishing business. And their travels were limited to the banks and depths of this lake. Jesus, however, would sharpen their vision. Jesus would broaden their purpose. Jesus would prepare them to represent Him in His absence. And in light of this, let me propose a question and offer a simple illustration. The question being this. We know that, I'll have a statement first. We know that he prepared them by them remaining dusty. He changed all those things and their perspectives, visions, and, and, and outlooks and outputs and goals of life. But how does Jesus continue to take normal people like William Gordon and all of us and sanctify us so that we submit? I'm afraid my battery's dying. Let's see if we can hear. That's all right. So how does Jesus, I'll just stay close. Thank you. That mic's in all pocket. I'm double pocketed. How does Jesus continue to take normal people like us and sanctify us that we too become fishers of men? Even in the midst of our careers, not, this isn't just to say we're, we're now leaving our roles as engineers and we're, we're becoming vocational, whatever God says, though he may call you to do that. But how does he work in us so as to cause us to be fishers of men in the midst of our everyday? And I, I bring this just kind of to an answer by sharing an illustration. It's, it's simple, right? But some... I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, my, my dad had gotten unhealthy and I decided to begin running. I ran a mile the first time, two miles the next time, and I began this process. And then I told everyone, every crowd I spoke in front of, even when I'm running three miles and dying at the end of it, I told them all, I'm running a marathon. I threw it out there to everybody so that they would keep asking me until it happened. And then I began to digest writings and articles about things that are necessary to help me become uh, successful at that right there. I'd read Runner's World but as the kids and my wife were getting ready for us to leave, and I would, I would just kind of bank through all of this knowledge and things. I began to eat differently, drink differently, read things that helped me, hang out with people who were better than me. I'd run with groups. I would do all of these things. And notice how Jesus says, come follow me. And I'll make you fishers of men. And everything in their life then began to be revolving around that purpose and mission. He saturated them with him so that his vision became their vision. Likewise, you have in your possession not only the scriptures, not only brothers and sisters in the Lord with whom you can rub shoulders with and be held accountable to, listen, my life is not my own. That's not a compartmentalization of my life that doesn't belong to me, but all of me belongs to him because I've been purchased. 
And when that requires or sets the table for me to open up my mouth as a fisher of men, by God's grace, he's preparing and doing a work in me, changing me from the inside out so that what I'm speaking is his. I don't tell self-deprecating stories about myself just to give you things to laugh about, but I have shared with you that I did three book reports in high school on the same book. But a light switched when God began to get a hold of my heart and began to motivate me and work in me. Not that I would be stronger or better, but he just changed my hunger patterns when I got serious about ensuring that all of my life was for all of him. And I can remember Shannon and I sitting on a tennis court, ironically, reading how not to have exciting dates with your soon-to-be bride. But we were reading a book out loud to each other. And it was a book that, at the time, the Lord was using strongly in my life spiritually. And I'm just saying, I went from reading S.E. Hinton, The Outsiders, three, three different times throughout high school, to God fueling in me and giving me a greater appetite for things that helped me in the process of becoming fishers of men. You can't saturate yourself with the world's content and expect to be any different than a fisher who would rather be getting, getting prepared to throw nets out into the water. Put yourself in a position to grow in the Lord, taking advantage of brothers and sisters who are encouraging you, the word that transforms you, and reading good books that motivate you. Fishers of men. Thanks for the uh, allowance of me to take that little sidebar. The third thing and the fourth thing will be shorter things. And that's this, that his teaching astonished. Verses 21 through 45 contain vignettes that follow the calling of the first disciples um, with these vignettes where Mark provides samplings of what we'll see throughout the whole rest of Jesus' ministry and what Mark will lay forth in the rest of his book. Everywhere people, everywhere Jesus went, people were both, and you see both of these words in this chapter, they were both astonished and they were amazed at his teaching, right? Here's the language of Mark chapter 1. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. What caused this authority to be so evident? Well, not only that he's speaking because he had a knowledge of what he was talking about, but he embodied what he was talking about. What he spoke about was not just him because he's one with the Father, but because this is why I'm here. This that I'm telling you about is true. And it was his meat and milk and water. And it was not only things that he was sharing, but it was things that sustained him. And we won't take the time to study each of these, but Jesus demonstrated his authority with authority over demons. He demonstrated his authority over sickness. So you'll, you'll see. He's, he's teaching. He's doing the miraculous. He has come to, to come against the works of the devil. And it is war. And he does so by coming across uh, against the demons and putting them in their place. And he is demonstrating his authority over sickness. And you'll see this pattern as we travel through the entire book of Mark. Allow me to handpick one of them just to point out one thing. Look at verses 40 
through 42. In verses 40 through 42, here's what it says, and I think it just com- it contains a, com- a snapshot of Jesus' compassion. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, I love this, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus responds, well, Mark records how Jesus responds. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Check this. Jesus was moved with pity and he made himself ceremonially unclean by touching this leper so that he could be made clean. Jesus, fast forward, moved with compassion, would eventually go further than this and make himself unclean before his father by taking on the sins of his people upon himself that they might be cleaned through the shed blood of himself. Thanks be to God. This is your Savior who stood to teach with authority, but he did so in keeping with his actions. His actions were in keeping with his teaching. His teachings were in keeping with his action. He's fleshed out what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, that we might live in a manner worthy of our calling. His calling and voice and testimony is in keeping with his action, his heart of um, compassion toward his people. And then look at this last point I just want to mention. And that's this, that his fame spread. His fame spread. If you'll look down at verse 28, you'll see this right in the heart of this section. It says, and at once... His fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. It's kind of like saying all of Catoosa County, right? Or the whole area, not just Ringgold, LFO, or Lakeview, or even outside of Walker into Rossville. This whole area that he's, he's been walking and talking and teaching and healing and, and casting out unclean spirits. His fame is spreading for what he's doing. But... He did not come to be a spectacle. He came to be a substitute. So that all who believe in the Lord Jesus would be saved. You got this recurring theme throughout all of Mark that Jesus would do the miraculous and then say, don't tell anybody. It's not that he didn't want his fame spread, but he wanted his fame spread for the right things and the right reason. So that Jesus has now been preaching in Galilee and, and he takes time to get alone with the Father and he's, he's having a little quiet time with his Father, praying before the Father and his disciples find him and said, listen, dude, everybody's looking for you. You need to come down here because like the, the time is ripe. This is your moment. But Jesus said, hey, I got a better idea. Let's go to some of the other towns so I can preach there also because that's why I came out. He didn't come to be a spectacle. He came to be a substitute so that all who heard could respond to the gospel. I've written down three or four things that 
I want to just share with you in conclusion here. Um, and I think they might even be in order of the passage as we've got as we went through it. The first one is this. If you're in this room and you're hearing talk about this word gospel and it's new to you, or maybe for the first time in your life, the Lord in his kindness is giving you ears to hear and eyes to see with a receptivity that makes you say, I've heard this, but I need more information. Let me say this, that the call to follow Christ is preceded by the command to repent. And the repentance, this call to turn away from sin and turn and run toward Jesus is in response to a crisis of faith moment when all of us hear the gospel and are forced into a decision. Am I going to receive or am I going to reject? Am I going to receive this gospel as coming from the one who is sovereign over all? The kingdom of God is at hand. Am I going to hear this as the gospel truth and go on with my neutral life or my, my passive existence, just letting life and church and work and all of the things just kind of wash over me? Or am I going to say, this could be my chirotic moment? And that's my point number two, that I would encourage you to hear the gospel, respond by faith, and trust Jesus if you never have, repenting from your sin and running toward Jesus, believing in the gospel that Jesus came as your substitute. But also, secondly, is today could be chirotic for you in the sense that this could be that day, that season, that monumental season upon which every other part of your life pivots and hinges where you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. But maybe you're in this room and you are a believer. It can be chirotic for you as well in the sense that this could be that moment that the Lord is using through this text that we've, we've skimmed over, uh, apologetically I must say, but that we've skimmed over kind of having this glimpse of not only why Christ came, but that Christ came issuing a call, a call to repent, believe the gospel, and follow him, which involves us getting dusty from our master. And when we're dusty from our master, our lives are leveraged for the kingdom. And for you, it could be a day where you're sticking a stake in the ground and said, I've been playing through passivity for far too long. All of my life belongs to him for his glory. Number two, this day, by God's grace, could be chirotic for you. Number three comes from verse 35. Verse 35 says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Can I just encourage those of you, all of you in this room, who seek to walk in the calling of becoming and being fishers of men, Let's all follow the lead of Jesus in every sense, but also in this one, that we might retreat so as to resume this walk he's given us. Wherever it is, prioritize your time away in the Lord. Set away your devices. Set away your distractions for some time so that you might hear from him and grow in his word. That's the third thing. 
And the final thing is just an encouragement for us. And it's this. It's just like when Jesus said, hey, where is everybody? Where, where, where have you been? Everybody's looking for you. And Jesus had another plan, right? He didn't, he didn't allow the beeping of a text message to rob him of what he was doing so that he could respond to this. He didn't allow the disciples saying, everybody's looking for you. Come on, we got to go down here. From robbing him of the steps that his father had told him to take. So I say this, resist the temptation for conventional wisdom to trump biblical wisdom in your life. And I take that from this. Let's go down to the next town that I might preach there also. That's why I came. Listen, that's why he came out. But it's not why he came. He came to save sinners. And for that, redeemed people, we are most grateful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this book of Mark. Thank you for the beginning stages of Jesus' ministry. Thank you that time was indeed fulfilled, whereby you, Jesus, came in the flesh, bringing the kingdom of God at hand, so that all who trust in the finished work that you performed on the cross might be saved. And Lord, saved not to our own whims, but saved as yours to leverage our lives as called ones, seeking to obey you in everything we do and prioritizing Jesus as you did, the good pleasure of making your gospel known to other people. We trust you with the results of that, but empower us to open our mouths and that our conversations may be sweetened and salted with the things of Christ so that by your grace, others might know and respond in Jesus' name. Amen.